0: If you are a visitor here this morning, Greg Swinford, who is, uh, I think we voted on this, Greg will be, our next fundraiser is going to be the Men of Conduit swimsuit calendar, and Greg will be, (laughs) is going to be January. So, so if you're a visitor here this morning, (laughs) Mr. January is going to be handing out these cards. Now, normally, we actually have a gift for you that is... uh, these bracelets that we've had made in Africa. Um, and what we're doing is for every bracelet, for every visitor, so you give us a day and we pay for a week of school for a young man or young woman at uh, a technical school, Calvary Chapel a Technical School in Togo, Africa. The problem is, is, we're out of those bracelets this week, which means we've sent, uh, we started out with, I think, 100 of those. That means you're going to, you know, Hundred weeks of school that we've paid for just from people visiting. So that said, I'm sorry we don't have them this morning, um, and we don't have any Jesus koozies either. So I'm not sure if if it's worth it to raise your hand <laughs> for either one of those. But if you're a visitor, uh, we'd love to we would love to have a record of your visit. And uh, if you'd, uh, we have magnets, complimentary magnets. Okay, now raise your hand if you're a visitor. Hands going up, everywhere It's like an altar call with Billy Graham, right? <laughs> I see those hands. <laughs> Um, We'd just love to have a record of your visit. Um, I'm Darren Tyler. I'm the pastor here. And uh, I don't know. I woke up with a Miley Cyrus song in my head, so I don't know what that means for the service today. It can't be good. (laughs) That's all I know. I mean, I'm 39 years old waking up nodding my head like, yeah. I don't even know what it means. (laughs) 40. Oh, it's true. Let me tell you what, though, my 40-year-old rear end was running yesterday. I was out. Uh, I clocked six miles yesterday. Now, I want you to know I did not break any speed records. But we, yeah. I don't know, uh, Jonathan, if there were any calls of sightings of a Yeti in uh, Spring Hill to the police department. But that or the great pumpkin, one of the two. In um, my legs, that's, I'll be sitting a lot today, because, man, this just wasn't good. Um, And that's, the reason we're doing that is a few of us have taken a pledge to run this half marathon, which by the way, six miles, not almost 13. That's what was so discouraging. I'm not almost done. Um, So we're gonna run the Music City Marathon, but it's in uh, raising money for our partners in Togo, Africa. And uh, so there's a few of us that have uh, agreed to do that. Some of us that probably shouldn't have. Um, So here we go, Uh, and for that matter, uh, another thing that we're doing coming up, I just want you to know is the. Uh, I, hopefully, I can make this announcement now. The Conduit Mission Golf Classic, okay? Because I, I understand not many of you wanted to go run 13 miles for whatever reason. I don't know, but I'm figuring a lot of you would not mind coming and playing golf. So on uh, June 6th, if you go to ConduitMission.org, um, there's information on that. We're, we're, we're ironing out a few of the final details of it, but we're rolling with it. And here's and just so you know, if you're visiting. Uh, Conduit Church was born out of Conduit Mission. You know, most times a church adds a mission department. We were a mission that added a church department. It was the other way around. We started the Conduit Mission four years ago now. as an I- The idea being that we could take in revenues and be just what we said, a simple conduit of his resources, of his spirit to the community in front of us, to the world around us. And so in the past four years, we've given away in excess of $400,000 to missions uh, projects in Haiti and in Africa, right here in our own backyard um, through the mission. And from that, a church was born. And so we've maintained a a separation of those two organizations because I mean honestly let's be honest the last thing you want me to do is coming in here and beating you over the head asking for money every week right and so instead of us doing that and trying to uh, it's like our our vision the mission I believe that God has called us to do is bigger than what our little band of warriors can do which generally speaking means that it's the Lord and so I've was an entrepreneur I started businesses over the years some of them worked some of them not so much but one of the things that I felt the Lord saying as a church was, instead of that, then we'll continue to, instead of uh, you know, beating up over you know, offerings every week, we'll also go out and we'll raise money. We'll go out and be entrepreneurial about it. And so this year when the Lord told us to go on the offense, to go out and to generate revenues, that's part of what we're gonna do. We brought on Sarah Pappas, who's with us this morning. Sarah is part of the, ch- uh, the church, her husband is an elder here. And Sarah is a machine. Um, Every Monday morning, I show up for our meeting, and I, uh, I have everything going that is supposed to be done, because if I don't, well, I don't think I have to tell you what's going to happen. Now, um, but Sarah's out there right now raising uh, sponsorships for the golf tournament. We've got several things going on this year, but that is the goal. It's like if we're going to, you know, in a business, if it were a business, which, by the way, it's not. It's a, it's a mission. It's a vision. We just believe that there are those around us. There are ways that we can creatively generate revenue that can accomplish the vision. And to that end, you know, this week, uh, we issued a $10,000 challenge to our uh, project in Haiti or Africa to tell them if, if, if he could raise up to $10,000 we'll match that dollar for dollar and he's raised several thousand dollars already so we're doubling your money he's reconnecting with his donors and what we figured out is that like where we are in Togo Africa if you go to Lomé and go north ten hours it's um, so the southern coast is Lome. Go north 10 hours to a little tiny town. You're not there yet. You still have two and a half hours more to go to where, like, National Geographic goes, like when they go to Africa. And so that's where we are. And we're like, we don't, you know, all we know is we got to, that's where God has called us. We, uh, they gave a, a plot of land to build on. And so now it's like, well, that's great. Now, how do you build, you know, in Africa? So we sent some plans over that uh, Greg Swinford put together with Jim Henderson. And we got the bid back this week, and it's only going to be $5,300. So we're going to build this house that will be the house for the pastor who is moving up there this week. It's a Calvary Chapel guy out of uh, Lome, Africa, with his two kids, and in his living room will become our feeding program. That's where we'll start to feed our first 43 kids, 43 orphans. In Africa, the difference between Haiti and Haiti, there are orphans, but the vast majority of orphans in Haiti actually have parents. They've got at least a single mom, but she can't afford them. And so she has to give them up. And so that's why in Haiti we've been focused on single moms creating a stop gap so they don't have to make that decision. In Africa, it's, it's true orphans where their parents are dead. The, the uh, statistics are that mom and dad will contract AIDS at some point. Dad will usually die first. And by the time that the oldest child is 13 or 14 is when mom will die. And then you've got a 12 or 13-year-old head of household to be like Maddie in charge of our family. And so it's true orphans, and we've got a village of 300 true orphans that are living and scratching and fending for themselves that we feel like God has called us to change that to change the this, uh, this system, to break that cycle. So the, the outpost we'll be building this year, Greg and a team are going over to uh, help with the construction of this deal. And then the next step will be to build a house on either side of them that will then be full-time housing for each, the, the boys on one side, the girls on the other. Uh, and it's all gonna be done from the confines of a church. We love it when it's done from a church. Uh, and they've asked us, the pastor asked us if he could call it Conduit Togo. And I thought, why not? You know, we're not looking to put our name on anything. Not that it even matters, because the vast majority of the population is illiterate anyway. So whatever the sign says, they don't know. So, but that's, a, that's, that's, the, uh, that's what we're going to call it over there. So that's why we have conduit mission, because the Lord has called us. And I understand why you, they use the word missions plural in a church setting. Or, but we have a mission, a singular mission, which is to transform individuals with the power of the gospel of Jesus, transforming their lives. It isn't the social gospel. It gospel. It's the gospel. It's Jesus transforming their lives, and as we do that, then it is going to transform them not only in uh, their spiritual lives, but also in the lives around them. So thanks to you guys for that. And if you're visiting, that's just a, qu- a little snapshot of what, uh, of what our church is about. This has been a fascinating week. Have you watched uh, the news this week? Yesterday in Libya, uh, oil well on fire. Half of their output uh, cut off at this point. Uh, And if you haven't filled up with gas this week, um, you you might be shocked if you go in tomorrow. (laughs) Because the world is in a strange place right now. And we started a conversation last week that (laughs) some of you, I got a couple emails, man, you lost me like a paragraph in, I'm really sorry. (laughs) So, So hang with me today. Some of you thought it was great. Some of you, there was a pretty passionate message. I guess that's a good one, right? When they hate it or love it, there was no middle ground. But I want you to know that I believe there's a reason why we got to begin this conversation. Last week wasn't meant to be comprehensive. It was meant to be the beginning of a conversation. In First Chronicles, you don't have to turn there, but you could go there later if you're interested in these things. But David's men are coming together to stand beside him. The warriors are coming together. And it lists out uh, the tribes. And it's, you know, Judah's got 6,800 men, Simeon 7,100, and, and down in... Verse 31, the half-tribe of Manasseh, there were 18,000, and verse 33 was the men of Zebulon with 50,000 men. But in between all of those, in verse 32, was this little tiny group of people known as the men of Issachar. And it says in verse 32 that the men of Issachar, who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. I believe that we ought to be like the men of Issachar that we ought to understand the times that we live in. And because of that, we can know what to do. Now, there weren't very many of them and there were only 200 sandwiched in between 18,000 and 30,000 and 7,800. There were these 200 dudes that understood the times that they lived in and knew what Israel ought to do. And my prayers is that if we begin a conversation like this is so that we can understand the times that we live in and know what we ought to do, that we can lead those around us. I am shocked at how many of my pastor friends have no idea what's going on. Shocked that they're actually, really, help me understand, what what does that mean? One guy that actually didn't even know there was an uprising in Libya. I I don't even know how that's possible, but it's true. And so I say that, it, it sounds like I'm being condescending, and I don't mean to be, but I'm saying that for us, That I believe that the grace of God is saying to us to wake up and to know what's going on so that we can know what to do and lead our brothers and sisters around us in how we ought to be. And to figure out how we got here in Egypt or Libya or Iran or Iraq, we got to go back to where it started, right? Which we talked about last week. It started with a guy named Mohammed. And I have brought for you this morning... A PowerPoint, and I'm going to use the word presentation very loosely. <laughs> huh? That's pretty hot, right? Because <laughs> last week I'm saying these names and nobody knows how to spell it, so I'm going to just give you PowerPoint information as opposed to a presentation. But it starts with a guy named Mohammed that we've all heard of. And he starts this religion through a series of visions and things, and he sets up shop in Medina, which is in modern-day Saudi Arabia. And it was blowing and it was going and, you know, as as any good false religion, just off to a great start until he died. And he didn't have a successor named. And so, immediately, a division comes right down the middle. And on one side, you got the people that say that we should should choose the successor. It shouldn't just be in the bloodline because then it could be like any old king. It should be somebody that we all come together and agree on and choose. And so they rally around a guy named Abu Bakr, who was a close associate. He was a family friend of Muhammad. He was a trusted advisor, and they thought that's who we should follow. On the other side was a guy named Ali. He was a son-in-law, but his followers said that we need to have somebody in the bloodline. It should be someone that has Muhammad's blood flowing in their veins. Now, he was a son-in-law, but also, on a technicality, he's a cousin. And no, it was not in Arkansas. (laughs) That was funny last week, too. Anyway, so you got Ali, who's a cousin in the bloodline. And at this moment in time, and and this is important, because you view Islam as this monolithic, giant religion that's everybody's Working against us, and it's not because at this moment these two sides, these two uh, factions, have formed, and they draw a line in the sand. And we know them now, Bucky, as Shia and Sunni. This is fancy, right? I'm not going to charge you any extra today for this. On the side of Abu Bakr is Sunni. You you hear these terms on the news. You, this is what it means. Abu Bakr on the Sunni side was a, again a close advisor chosen he wasn't a blood relative but on his side is the side of Sunni now that are uh, those are predominantly uh, most of the Arab nation are Sunni on the other side is what is Shia which was the cousin the son-in-law a blood relative is it making sense now because you got a picture on either, and these are two divisions that are in the middle of Islam that are warring against each other to this day. And so, Bucky, now we're getting somewhere. On the left side, you see the Shia division. And you see, man, there's only 15% of these guys are Shia. Worldwide, 15% would consider themselves to be Shia. The, The biggest concentration of them would be in the northern side there in Iraq and Iran. Now, the difference between Sunni and Shia is this. The followers of Ali, not a big fan of Abu Bakr's people, and they feel like they're getting too much power. And so a few decades later, they kill the successor to Abu Bakr, one of his successors down the line. Did not go over well, as you might imagine. So the the, the followers of Ali, not to be outdone, they kill the eleventh imam, the the successor to Ali, dead. So now it's, uh, you know, an eye for an eye, an imam for an imam. And what happened at that moment was at his funeral, the, the, the successor of Ali at his funeral, his son, according to their tradition, disappeared. Gone. In a miraculous disappearance that they believe will be resulting in his return. And you might hear Ahmad Ahmadinejad, I can never say his name right, the president of Iran, when he, two years ago, he's, he comes to town and all these guys, you know, uh, Mike Wallace and these guys that are interviewing him, and they're throwing all these softball questions, asking about his suit and his tie, and, you know. But they don't ask him the question of, what's up with this 12th imam thing? Because even at, when he speaks at the United Nations on our soil, he ends his sermon with a prayer to speed the r- return of the 12th imam. They believe that this young man that disappeared is coming back. His, his sermons, his speeches are littered with talk of the return of the 12th Imam. They are focused on eschatology in the Shia religion because they believe that they can speed his return with bloodshed, with war, with violence. It's why it is so dangerous that they want nuclear weapons. Because they believed that they could wipe Israel off the face of the earth. They could start a war that could then in turn bring the return of the 12th imam. In the 80s, we had it so good and we didn't even know it. Because you know why? Russia didn't want to die. It was like a big giant game of chicken. But nobody wanted to die. So we weren't going to nuke them and they weren't going to nuke us. We didn't know that, and we made all kinds of great movies about it, and you know, Red Dawn, the whole thing. But but we didn't know that, but we now looking back, they didn't want to die because of a thing called mutually assured destruction. Mad. These guys don't have that fear. It's a very dangerous and ominous thing for them. On the other side, you think, oh, thank God we got the Sunnis then. Because they can help us, because they think he's crazy too. They think he's insane. And they don't want nuclear war, and they want him gone. Now, what's funny is they're sitting around waiting for us or Israel to do something about it. But you think, oh, thank God we got them, because they've got to be the sane ones in Islam, because they think he's crazy too. And that's great until you remember that Osama bin Laden and every one of the hijackers on 9-11 were Sunni. They believe they are focused on jihad, which means and they call it doing jihad, which is fascinating. We heard this speaker last night, Nani, saying that even in the Sharia, their law, that their leaders are focused on jihad. That means to on their neighbors around them to conquer, to defeat, to convert them by whatever means. Which is why, and she pointed this out, Anwar Sadat was the president of Egypt that signed a treaty with Israel years and years and years ago. She said every mosque in town, every imam and his cousin issued a fatwa to get him murdered because he had violated Sharia law in cutting a deal with Israel because it was not to do peace, it is to do jihad. And she pointed out that that is why years later, this is a girl that was born in the Middle East, educated in schools in Gaza. Her father was uh, uh, in in the Fedayeen, started Fedayeen. I might have that part wrong. Big shot. He was murdered, killed by Israel in war because of the war that he had done on it. And here she's a Christian miraculously saved. She knows the drill. She's out right now, and you know that you're in a place where somebody's doing something serious when you have to have, like, uh, metal detectors to get in the place. Um, But she said this, that is why Arafat, when sitting down with President Clinton, you might remember the, I think it was the Camp David Peace Accords, gave him everything he wanted for the peace between Israel and uh, Palestine. Everything he wanted, and he wouldn't sign it. And the reason he didn't sign it is because he couldn't sign it because their law prohibits it. They don't want peace. They want jihad. They want the world to be conquered by Islam. So on both sides, we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Those are the things that they have different, focused on jihad, inner, outer. In the middle is what we have in common. Both these sides want it. Now, they're taking different paths, but their goal is the same, and that is that the entire world would be conquered by and subservient to Islam. Sharia law, which, by the way, is not a separate. In America, we have the Bible, and we have the Constitution. We have the Bill of Rights. These are mutually exclusive documents. One gives us freedom to pursue the other, but inside of Islam, they are inextricably wound together they are the same thing their law their law that would say that if you are a woman and you have been raped that you have to have four witnesses and if not you can be convicted of and punished for adultery i don't know i've i've never i'm not an expert on rape but having four witnesses that feels like putting somebody 25 yards back in a 50 yard dash you are less than a citizen If you are a female, you are a piece of property to be traded, to be sold, to be... I say this to say that that is the enemy that we face. And I hopefully gave you some hope last week. I'd like to give you more hope this week. In Revelation 17, is this semi-cryptic prophecy about a harlot that would... Get on the back of the beast and ride him like a horse. Control the beast. The beast in Revelation refers to Antichrist, that coming world leader, that, uh, the, the, the uh, nations that would come together in an alliance that would come against Israel, that would be controlled by this great harlot that theologians for decades have always believed to be a religion, a world religion. And for decades, they would try to make this be the Catholic Church. They would say that the seven hills were Rome, and because of Rome, this great religion, and I get it why, it would make, why they, needed, they needed something to make sense. And they would look at Babylon and say, well, it's, uh, it was Babylon, because it says here, Mystery Babylon the Great in verse 5. It's what's written on her forehead. The mother of prostitutes and the abominations of the earth. That this great religion in Babylon would, would be Rome. Because in, in in John's day when he wrote this, Rome was the, the Babylon of that day. Which is great, and maybe that's true. It might be true. This week there was a fascinating article on foreignpolicy.com about the relationship between Libya and Italy. And how maddening it was that Italy, for the last decades, have bowed to the pressures of Gaddafi. No matter how, the crazier he got, the more stuff they gave him. Because of this relationship. Libya was a part of the Roman Empire. Maybe it's Rome. Maybe it comes out of there. Or maybe Babylon, which is, by the way, under Saddam Hussein's reign, was being reconstructed by Saddam because he had this fascination with Nebuchadnezzar. 40 miles south of Baghdad, it's like Murfreesboro to Nashville. He was rebuilding this ancient city. And we know that these prophecies that concern Babylon haven't been fulfilled because they say that they will never be inhabited again. It's not true because it is inhabited now. And so, maybe, just maybe, in Revelation 17, he's talking about a religion, a world religion. That wants to control a government system. Maybe, just maybe, the harlot of Revelation 17 would be Islam. And I say that to not scare you, but to say this to you. You know what, go to chapter 18. Because I just want to skip ahead to the end, and then I'm going to circle back around, and now what do we do? Because this is pro- like last week, this is great, and now what? Go run and hide, move to Montana, they can't find us there. I lived in Nebraska. That's where I'm going. No, they, um, It says in chapter 18, in verse 2, an angel is shouting out, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit and a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her. And the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. The the oil in the Middle East, does it ring a bell with anybody? He is saying this, that's the end. Islam in the end doesn't win. We can rest in knowing that our Father lovingly and mercifully told us ahead of time how it was going to end. He told us in Daniel 11 that the kings of the south would would come together and coalesce and battle the kings of the north as they would come together. Iran and Iraq, Shia in the north, Sunni in the south. This was an unthinkable thought because Gaddafi, Mubarak, these guys weren't going to form any sort of an alliance. But what if they're gone? And what if the Muslim Brotherhood forms an alliance? It's their stated goal is what they want to do. I say that not to scare you, but to say, it's going to be okay. Because we saw last week in Isaiah 19 and 20, the end game there, and that is that Egypt, that Assyria, which is Iran and Iraq, that Egypt would all worship the Lord together. Unimaginable now, but Jesus, when he returns, will do that. That's the end game. And so I say to you today, to me, well, that's just great. Now what? What do we do now? Do we? I had a great conversation this week with a guy named Tim Witherow, and it was like, well, if this is all prophesied, if this is all going to happen anyway, what do we do? Nothing? And the answer, absolutely not. Because if we really believe, and I truly believe that Matthew 24, when he speaks of the, the signs of the end... We're seeing them manifest all around us. Earthquakes and famines and wars and rumors of wars and nations and kingdoms, it's all around us. So what do we do about it? Do we hide, do we sit? No, no, Jesus actually gives us a game plan. But the first thing we have to do in any war situation is identify our enemy. And understand this, that when I say our enemy, our enemy, Jesus said to love your enemies in Matthew 5. Interesting, because he uses the word there, that means just a, like a, a, your attorney that's on the other side of it. You're a guy that hates you, that wants to take you down. But when Peter says that your enemy, Satan, goes around like a roaring lion, pardon me. In Matthew 5, it's him saying somebody that hates you, an ideology that opposes you. In Peter, when he says your enemy goes around like a roaring lion, he says, that's your, an attorney that wants to take you down, that literally Hates you that wants to destroy you, and he refers to that as Satan. And this is an important point because our enemy, your enemy, Satan, wants to devour and to destroy you literally, figuratively, any way he can. And the important point to delineate this is that he is your enemy. The Imams that are preaching, the guys that blew themselves up on 9 11, they are hostages. Satan has deceived them. And when Jesus says to love your enemy, he's speaking of them. How do we then love them? Love the hostages that are taken by Satan, who are then, just like we are the hands and feet of Jesus, bringing his love and his peace and his kingdom to the earth, they are the hands and feet of Satan, bringing destruction, thievery to you and to I to destroy us. So how do you do that? What do you, how do you respond to that kind of an enemy? And I would suggest to you that the answer is no different than any of this sort of spiritual warfare. The Word. The Word of God is sharper, he says in Hebrews, than any two-edged sword, dividing the soul and the spirit. And when we use the Word, go to the Word, speak the Word, do the Word, that is how we advance upon the kingdom of darkness. Number one, speak the word. And I want you to know this, that when you hear, and I've heard, man, I hear guys that I respect and I want to slap them, who say, well, we got to love our enemies. So we don't really want to, we're being politically correct. What I'm even saying this morning, I've got friends that feel bad for me and are praying for me because they think that we are, that I've, I've missed it, that I, we got to love our enemies. Paul would tell us in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is patient, love is kind you know this passage you might have read it at your wedding it doesn't envy it's not boast it's not proud it's not rude it's not self-seeking not easily angered doesn't keep any records of wrongs but look at this love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth so maybe we got to do it with kindness but speaking the truth is love and speaking the truth about this, that for some reason, even our nation, our leaders right now, it's like they can't win a guy. our Two of our guys get shot and killed in Germany this week. And our political leaders can't even bring it to themselves to say, well, it might be Islam. The guy is screaming, Allah Akbar. Newsflash, that's Islam. But they don't want to offend anybody. The truth is that this religion, if you follow it, Islam to the letter of the law, to what their book, to what the Quran tells to do, there are far more passages about conquering, about killing, about murdering. A friend Asher that I just met that works with the voice of the Copts, the voice of the Coptics in Egypt says, try to find peace in the, in the Quran. Try to find the word love in the Quran. It's not there. So I say to you that speaking the truth, and I'll go a step further and say this, that when we are preaching sermons, whether it's on the airwaves, which is happening right now, there are shows that are radio and television broadcasting into Muslim nations. Speaking the truth, the war of the airwaves, I believe that is spiritual warfare. Because when we say the word, when we declare to be false, what the enemy says is true, that is spiritual warfare. We are using what Jesus himself uses the word, declaring false to be what Satan says is true, and vice versa. That is spiritual warfare. Our job is to speak the truth to our friends, to our neighbors. And you might say, Darren, I couldn't, unless you give me that slideshow, I can't even begin to. Paul said to the Corinthians, he said, when I came to you, I didn't come to you with fancy words or education. I just came to you with Jesus Christ and him crucified. Start with what you know. Just speak the truth. Speaking that into anybody's life is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Isaiah would say that when that word goes out, it doesn't return void. It goes and accomplishes what it is said to do. We have to speak the word. Number two, we have to do the word. Jesus would tell us in Matthew 25, a passage that all of us know. Passage that many of us have quoted when he said that when you've done it unto the least of these brothers of mine, that you've done it unto me. Hold a finger there. You know what, just go there and I'll go with you. I want to show you one thing that Peter actually tells us to do. Because the question is really this. This is all in the passage of Peter talking about us being a holy nation. When I'm saying what do we do, what should we do, I want you to know that I'm not speaking specifically of America, the government. I believe that there are things that the state does need to do, should do. I also believe that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. So we need to, that things need to happen there. But when I say us, when I say we, when I'm speaking of our nation, I'm speaking of what Peter calls the holy nation. He says in First Peter 2 verse 9 that you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into wonderful light. What do we do as a holy nation? What does our nation, the body of Christ, do? He says in verse 15, for it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the talk of foolish men. When we are doing the word, when we are feeding these kids in Haiti, in Africa, churches in the Middle East right now that are loving, ministries that are going even into Gaza and bringing emergency relief where possible to those that that uh, that are suffering, people in Israel that are suffering. When they do good, it silences the talk of evil men. I was reading a book this week by a guy named Joel Rosenberg, and he recounts the story of meeting a guy who had grown up in Gaza. He was a, uh, a, a, a an aide to Yasser Arafat, and he comes to Christ and even gets the opportunity to share Christ with Yasser Arafat before his death. By the way, his conversion was his friend says, you know, he's trying to tell him to read the Bible, and, and, and the story goes that by the time this conversation is over, this guy is on his knees. A bright light has filled the room, and Jesus saves him like Pauline style, okay, on the spot. Those stories are happening by the hundreds and by the thousands every day in Iran and Iraq and Egypt. And But hear this out. This guy gets saved, he and his wife. They meet Joel Rosenberg, who was, who was Jewish, you might know by the name, who's written several books. And they come together and they are at a border hospital in a town called Ascalon in Israel. And they are Ministering to nurses and doctors at this hospital, and a former aide to Yasser Arafat, a former aide to I think Netanyahu, are together giving money from their foundations to these Jewish men and women, saying, We're doing it because we love you, because Christ has transformed us from the inside out. Because let me tell you this God cares just as much about Jews as He does about us, as He does about Arabs, and He wants them saved as well. How shocking is it when you're, if you're a Jewish. Man or woman to have the guy that used to want to kill you now giving you something because of the love of Christ that's transformed his heart. And I'm telling you that to say that if we do this, if we see more of these transformations, if we are preaching the gospel and men or women are being transformed by the gospel and they are going out and doing kind things for each other and for the, the world around them, that he says that we'll silence the talk of foolish men. Because right now what they see of you and I is in what they see in Hollywood what they see from the propaganda that's being forced upon them. They're told by their their news. We saw this last night, a news report. Israel went to Haiti to help, okay? I saw some of the guys down there, and women. They went there to help. Their news reports in the Middle East in an Arab station was saying, and I mean with a straight face, just like Anderson Cooper over there saying, They're over there stealing and harvesting organs from the Haitians. That's why they're over there, not because they're helping. So if you don't know anything else, you have no access to information outside, and all you're saying day after day after day is these guys are pigs. They're animals. Of course you want to do jihad against them. They don't know it. But what they need to know and see is us. Now, we're not going to break through maybe on Arab television, but if we are infiltrating their ranks from the ground war. There is an air war going on, don't get me wrong, and we need to be supportive of that and we need to uh, lift that up in prayer and our finances, but on the ground war as well, sending in, whether it's our people or financing those that are already on the ground, the answer is the Word. Doing the Word, saying the Word. One of the most effective ministers and speakers of all time, of all history, was a former Christian killer named Paul. His transformation was sh- shocking. But there was a moment in Acts when he was told to go to a place, and a man named Ananias was told to go and find him. And let me tell you what, if I'm Ananias, think of this. Jesus appears and says, I need you to go to Osama. And I need you to, t- he- there's something you need to say to him. Ananias is one of the biggest unsung heroes in the entire world because he did it and the conversion of Paul was completed because he had the courage to do it. I believe that we gotta have a room full of Ananias that'll have the courage to move forward. And the answer to the question of well if this is all prophesied why would we do anything? Remember that Matthew 25 was preceded by Matthew 24. Jesus' disciples came to him and said, Master, tell us will be the signs of the end. How will we know? And he says there will be wars and rumors of wars. And he begins to tell that. And he begins to tell some parables. And 24 and 25, it's all the same sermon. In the context of the end of days, in the context of the imminent return of Christ, he would say to you and to me, when you've done it unto the least of these brothers of mine, you've done it unto me. And it makes so much more sense when he says, did you feed me? There are widows of Men who have been martyred for their faith in Pakistan and Iran and Egypt who can't provide and support their families anymore because they don't have any source of revenue. Did you feed me? Did you clothe me? Refugees that have fled these nations with nothing but the clothes on their back, and trust me, it's not even very much on that department. Did you clothe me? It makes sense that he would say, did you visit me in prison? Hundreds of thousands of our brothers and sisters worldwide imprisoned. Under Sharia law, did you visit me in prison, he would say. In the context of the return of Christ, he would say this. And I'll tell you that as a church, we got to do better. What we've done in Haiti, I'm just stoked that God led us there. I'm stoked at what he's doing in Africa. And honestly, I want you to know that I believe what we're doing in Africa is and advance into the kingdom because that is their goal. They're doing it right now, entrenching into Africa. Us going in and transforming people by the power of Christ in Africa is an advance against what's going on against them right now, against Satan, against this harlot prostitute religion that he would refer to it in Revelation 17. That us doing that is an advance against that. But I want you to know as a church, I'd ask you to pray this week. What can we as a church do? If we have some resources, what ministries can we provide? For years, even with what happened in Haiti and Africa, I felt like God wanted us to do something. My heart was opening up, but I didn't know what to do, so I didn't do anything. It's an unacceptable response. And as a church, I don't know what to do, but I know that nothing is not the answer. And so my prayer for you, for I this week, is that you would pray, that we as a body would pray, that God would lead us to, to a ministry, to a, somebody. Maybe it is loving on these widows whose husbands have been murdered and uh, martyred on behalf of their faith. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's working with organizations that are on the ground already. I'm just saying, let's pray about it. Let's ask God as a body to lead us. I don't have to figure it out. We get to figure it out because we're the body of Christ. And if the Lord speaks to you this week, drop me an email, darren at conduitmission.org. You might be right now, we're like, oh, oh I, know, I know, I know. Just send it to me at conduitmission.org, and we as a church can pray about it and decide which way we're going to go. We're going on the offense in 2011, not only in our own personal lives against the enemy, but against the enemy in the world entrenched in the kingdoms of this world. And I've read the end. It's going to be awesome. (laughs) It's going to be spectacular. But I want to be able to say to Jesus, I want you to be able to say to Jesus when he said, did you feed me? Did you clothe me? Did you visit me in prison? Did you do these things to me, to the least of these brothers of mine, in context of the persecuted church, of believers, of Jewish People, there's an argument that's not without controversy, but an argument to be made that it is even speaking specifically of the Jewish brothers and sisters in Matthew 25. Did you do it? I don't want our answer to be no. I want it to be yes. As we worship, I would ask just to begin your prayers this morning. We're going to be worshiping, but feel free to check out and pray. Feel free to seek God's face. And I'm asking you every day this week. Jesus said, could you pray with me just one hour? Just divide it over a week, five minutes a day for all I care. Just pray. Seek God's face. And if he's speaking to you, please email me. I just know that I know that I know that he's saying to us that we've got brothers and sisters around the world that we may not see them. And it's even uncomfortable to think about it. And so we don't think about it at all. That we've just got to open our eyes. We know who our enemy is. It is Satan. And we know that Jesus died for Arabs, he died for Jews, and he died for us. That we might all be saved. It's his will that all would come to know him. How can we, as a church, do that? Father, we seek your will and your face today. That as a church, Lord, I know that each, we have, everybody in here, we've all come with our own individual needs and in battles that we're facing. But when we lock arms, we become an army become an army that can do great exploits for you. And Lord, I ask for wisdom, that that you would speak to us as a church body to move into the world, to know that this enemy, this great harlot, this religion that is persecuting its own people, persecuting Christians, persecuting Jews, that our way to defeat them is with your word, to speak it and to do it. Lord, give us wisdom in these things. Show us practically how this looks. And I ask for you to move among us today and to speak to us all. In Jesus' name.